0: welcome to affiliates in action affiliates in action is a monthly program designed to get you better acquainted with the various affiliates of the american council of the blind often we interview leaders of various acb affiliates sometimes we bring you presentations from affiliate conventions which is what we'll be doing this time with a presentation at the Bay State Council of Blind from Burlington, Massachusetts. Your hosts for Affiliates in Action are Rick Morin and Rick Lewis. Settle in and enjoy Affiliates in Action. Hi, I'm Rick Lewis. This is Affiliates in Action. And this time, we have a presentation for you from the Bay State Council of the Blind in Burlington, Massachusetts, at their spring conference, which was just last month. The presenter is Tony Stevens, the Advocacy Director of the American Council of the Blind. Before we get to Mr. Stevens and his presentation, I'd like to remind you that you can have your affiliate spotlighted on Affiliates in Action. In fact, we'd love to hear from affiliates who would like their story told. And I'll let you know how you can do it. You can write to Rick Morin, or you can write to me. My email address is rick at net. L-E-W-I-S-S-O-U-N-D is how you spell Lewis Sound. Rick at net. Rick Morin's email address is morin spelled M-O-R-I-N, at comcast.net. That's rick.morin at comcast.net. We'd love to hear from state or special interest affiliates who would like to be spotlighted on Affiliates in Action. You may even interest people in joining who might be listening but might not know the details about how your affiliate shines. We can help you get the word out. Now, Tony Stevens, the Advocacy Director of the American Council of the Blind, Recorded in Burlington, Massachusetts at the Marriott Hotel there in March of 2017.
1: It is a very big pleasure uh, to be here today with you all. Um, I want to say thanks to Frank and Brian and everybody uh, with the Bay State Council and the the opportunity to come up here uh, and present to you a little bit about what's going on uh, down south. And to be able to share with you, hopefully, some action items that you can get engaged with. Uh, before I get started, though, I just, I just wanted to say, I mean, because it is, it is special to, to, to get up here. It's one of the nice things about my job, especially these days, to be able to get out of Washington is a very big treat. And so I have the opportunity. I travel quite a bit in this season with conferences and also in the fall. I'll be going to California in a couple of weeks, and then Iowa after that, and then Florida after that, and then we obviously will have Reno this summer. But Massachusetts sort of has a special place in my heart, even though I'm a, I'm a, I moved south to D.C. from New York City. Uh, but my wife, my wife studied up here for five years at the New England School of Optometry, did a residency at Mass Eye and Ear. It's great to hear, she did low vision there, and it's great to hear what's going on there with you all, so congratulations, hats off for that work with Mass Eye and Ear. Um, in addition, too, I, I lived here a very brief while uh, out in Gloucester on the edge of Cape Ann, about 10 years, 12 years ago, uh, at, at where I did sort of my Jesuit boot camp. Those that, that know me have had the chance to talk. Personally, I spent a, sort of a very strange seven-year sojourn to be a priest and was with a group called Jesuits, Go Boston College. Yeah. And, That's Gloucester, by the way. Oh, Gloucester, sorry. Gloucester, sorry. Luckily, it was a silent retreat, so I didn't have to say it that much when I was up here for 30 days. But it was the time, I don't know if folks remember, a huge nor'easter we had in 2005. And I remember very vividly tapping my way when we were finally able to leave the little peninsula we were on uh, off Gloucester, 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 <laughs> that the, the, once they dug us out, there were eight, nine-foot sort of drifts off to the side. And because we were just hammered by the nor'easter. And so i, I that's an extremely vivid memory, the silence, the, the, the quiet that comes after a big storm like that. So it's nice to get up here in this wonderful summer weather you all gave me, because it really does feel like that when I think back to when I was at that other town 12 years ago. So to that end, what I'd like to do today is, is spend some time sharing with you uh, some of the successes, some of the challenges taking place in our nation's capital. Uh, I'd like to first commend you all and Brian and, and the six others that came down to Washington, D.C. to meet with your legislative staffers, with the members of Congress. Uh, it's a very special thing when you actually get to meet with those that represent you, not with just a 23-year-old who is a lot smarter than I am. Uh, and it's always that constant knowledge that for those that do get down there, you realize that really this country is being led by a bunch of graduate students uh, at our nation's capital, but they are, as, as we would say up here, I guess, wicked smart. So to that, to that end, though, uh, it, is, it is an extremely interesting time in Washington, D.C. The day that, that uh, those that came down to visit the capital was by far the busiest day I'd ever been to the U.S. Capitol. It was the same day that the president was presenting his, uh, his joint chamber of Congress speech on his proposed budget, which had come out uh, the other Thursday, when we finally had a chance to see that budget that he was referencing during that day. But there were advocates from all over the country, from all walks of life, all partisans. We had veterans. We had lots of pink hats and other groups that were meeting there. We had lots of red hats. D.C., moreover, wherever you stand politically with the elections, and I know I'm in a very blue state. I come from Maryland, and I know up here in, in Massachusetts as well, it, it tends to, to, to bleed blue. But in in no sense, I mean, you know, this is also uh, a state, too, that has shown that you can have bipartisanship that works together. I think when we look back to the health legislation that you all passed many years ago that was sort of the model for the Affordable Care Act. But I think one thing can be said out of this that for those of us on November 9th, when it was a rainy day in Washington, D.C., the day after the election, There was a great feeling of despair and unknown after the results of the election by many of us that are civil rights advocates in D.C. Uh, But a little bit of sunshine did come out that day. And I think the one thing, particularly having participated in the March on Washington on the 21st and working with the disability groups that were activating around that march, is the political activism that is taking place by the constituents. Whichever side of the aisle you stand on, Uh, there has been the opportunity for folks to exercise their First Amendment right. And a lot of folks don't realize what those right really entails. We always think of the First Amendment as freedom of speech, right? The freedom of the press. Or we might think about it as freedom of religion. But another core component of our First Amendment is the right to redress our grievances to government. Simply put, we have that right, and in some sense, it is a duty. As much as it is a duty to go out and vote, we have to continue the voting. We just don't put everything in the hands of those we elect. We have to inform them. So congratulations for, as Brian said, having one of the largest groups that were able to make it down. And that goes up against California that has 49, 50 congressional, over 50 congressional districts. So you all are very well represented, and it's exciting. But that does not mean just because, as I said, it's a blue state and you might think, you know, well, here we are in certain issues and Democrats lean very favorably towards a lot of the issues we, we represent, and we focus on, it doesn't mean that the battle's in, in no way over. Now, I am pleased to say, and many of you probably saw the news yesterday, there was a, a small victory uh, around the affordable health care. And... It's an interesting thing, though, to to remind folks, the battle is not over there. While Paul Ryan said yesterday in a press conference right after they they pulled the legislation at the president's request just before it was to go on the floor to vote yesterday for the American Health Care Act, which would have made 24 million Americans lose their health care insurance, would not have changed the deficit. And our primary concern as disability advocates in Washington were the 7 million Americans on Medicaid with disabilities and what would happen to that population with a sustainable model that by the year 2020, the way this bill was set up, states would have a huge share to pay in Medicaid. And it's not as much an issue for us when we talk about the home and community-based supports that Medicaid funds, but it it is definitely an issue uh, when we look at the buy-in through many of the states in the country with Medicaid. Uh, But even people who are blind do from time to time rely on a lot of these supports that often are associated more with the intellectual developmental disability community But it was something that we stood in solidarity with. Uh, It was ironic. I was supposed to go up to the Capitol on Wednesday, but I got called into a a meeting on accessibility. Uh, Another big area of news media has been immigration. And with the ramping up of enforcement with the Customs and Border Protection Agency and and Department of Homeland uh, uh, DHS, uh, there's been concern over people with disabilities on the border getting through and how we make sure they have reasonable accommodations. So I was on a call with one of the leaders from the CBP uh, that morning when I was supposed to go up onto the hill and protest. And I, I think uh, Madam President in the back was glad I, I got called into that call because a lot of the folks I was supposed to go up with ended up getting arrested in the rotunda. Um, so, but, but more power to them. Again, going back to what we were saying, the spirit of activating our voice is very much alive in D.C., and it needs to be, because there is a lot on the line right now for Americans with disabilities that we are going to have to wrestle with. Now, ACB is a bipartisan organization. Our members span every facet of life in our country. There are Republicans, there are Democrats. But I think one thing around the the American Health Care Act, when its its failure had shown, uh, was that even Republicans uh, can come together and say, you know what, sometimes too draconian, too large, is not the right path to take, particularly when it's Americans who are below the poverty line. For seniors, which we know is Americans who are blind and visually impaired, is a large percentage of our population now, and it will be increasing for the next 20 years. But we know that in terms of where we sit, the issues that we focus on are, in fact, bipartisan issues. You know, we echo the voice of the Americans with Disability Act, which was a bipartisan piece of legislation signed by a Republican president. Uh, Senator Bob Dole, I was at an event with Elizabeth Dole the other day uh, at the annual AAPD gala, the American Association of People with Disabilities, and, and you know she stands as a reminder through her husband who couldn't make it uh, because of his, his recent health concerns over the past year and being hospitalized. Um, but you know Republicans and Democrats stood hand-in-hand hand around the Americans with Disability Act. Now, some of the things that ACB has been focusing on legislatively – At our last conference that we had in the mid-year where folks came down to Washington, some of the things we focused on were the Medicare. We are working ourselves to position our messaging around an aging agenda. I've been working a lot with AFB, and uh, they have what's called an aging and vision loss in the 21st century sort of task force that's been overseeing a lot of issues. So we continue to fight for what we are calling the little steps we need to protect or expand to make sure that folks can age and continue to age in their home what's called aging in place. It's a major concern for those that work in the federal government, particularly around institutional care and the cost that institutional care has. And we're a firm believer that for those folks that are the newly blind folks that are going blind, that are in the vision loss, the baby boomers that are going to continue to expand, uh, but also, too, in communities of color with diabetes being the leading cause of blindness now with diabetic retinopathy, one out of ten people in the world have diabetes or, or, you know, They might not know it. It's a sleeping disease for many, but it is there. So we understand that our population is unique and aging, while recent years have shown a big rise in focus around youth and protection or an expansion of rights for youth with disabilities, particularly in the intellectual and developmental disability world. What was called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act was a key piece of legislation passed that expanded great opportunities for that population. We cannot forget the population of the older generation that is, that is experiencing the onset of disability, primarily sensory disability. And for that fact, Americans who are blind or visually impaired or in the process of losing their sight and will join our ranks in the next few years. Prevent Blindness America is projecting that in 2020 there's going to be a huge spike of Americans who are blind going up to 2030 and it'll be a a chronic condition our government, the CDC, says we'll have to wrestle with for the next 30 years. So to that end, how do we, in a sense, sort of set up protections and and things that can be expanded to help this population? That was one of the focuses at our mid-year conference, and we went out as well as fighting for the protection of certain programs that are critical, not just for this group, but all of us. We went up there trying to to protect because it was also right as the budget was getting ready to come out, such programs as the American Printing House for the Blind, National Library Services for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, uh, programs that fund Bookshare. There's a sign on going on around now uh, in, in terms of trying to save the education funding that, that lifts up Bookshare, as well as some of the programs that don't get a lot of attention. We are always constantly fighting to try to save RSA, the Rehabilitation Services Administration, with other advocates, uh, other programs such as Medicaid, but we wanted to make sure that the smaller programs are not forgotten. Because when you look through, particularly the other week, the president's budget, such things as the Institute for Museum and Library Services, which many states will use to help fund their talking book programs, is on the president's budget erased. So we need to try to make sure that we're speaking out is not just for the big things, but finding out the things that are important in our state. And if folks do use funding for IMLS here in the state, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that we need to be speaking out on. Just because we have a member of Congress who might ideologically see the world or hear the world as we see and hear it, it doesn't mean that they're always going to vote the way we need them to vote. There is a lot of noise now in Washington, D.C. Every time I go by the, the, the Capitol now, there is physical noise. There are demonstrations. There are streets being closed down. It's very difficult to get around the White House now. There's always something going on that's closing the streets. So it's making life very interesting for those of us in Washington. And I think it echoes the fact that there is every possible potential stakeholder group, both Republican and conservative, going up to the Hill now and calling the switchboard number and trying to get through to their member of Congress. So it is more important that our voices are amplified so that they are echoed so that we can continue to really have our voice cut through the noise. That's the key thing that we need to do as an organization is cut through the noise. So... A couple of things that uh, are, are, are key that are on the hot plate uh, where we need to, to sort of cut through the noise. I've been talking about making sure some of these programs are protected. Other small programs, too, like Helen Keller National Center um, and the programs that serve to blind around our country, uh, a population in, in, our, in our midst that often is, is, is underserved and, and overlooked by some of the more glamorous type issues for, for you know, sensory disabilities. Uh, these are important programs and services throughout the country that we need to try to fight and keep. There is one thing I wanted to mention to you all that is an action item that hopefully everyone here in this room can take with them today. Because there are only seven down in Washington, but hopefully there's, I guess, what, about 70 here for this conference. And however many members are listening on ACB radio now with their double latte and their pajamas still on, <laughs> listening from inside their blanket fort, I hope they too will take this message. There is a bill, H.R. 620. It's called the ADA Education Reform and Notifications Act of 2017. It was an act that I was up on, up on the hill with a bunch of disability advocates just the other day on Thursday before I went home to PAC to come here in trying to get a major push out in our community to notify members of Congress because this is an issue that Democrats and Republicans are supporting despite what we are trying to tell them. the Folks might have come across a a 60-minute segment late last year by Anderson Cooper, which focused on the the Americans with Disability Act and the the drive-by lawsuits, as they called it, which in many cases are the minority of lawsuits. Uh, They do exist. There are folks, we, we had to deal with it around a red box settlement in Pittsburgh, where suddenly as soon as people put bad precedent or bad law around trying to fix the red box boxes uh, through this sort of ambulance chase uh, lawyer, suddenly all these other cases started appearing in the Pittsburgh Circuit Court. Uh, It is a problem out there, but it's one of these things where we have to wrestle on the issue of of sort of this ambulance chase. the idea of the American with Disability Act is, you know, if our rights are violated, we have a right to protest as Americans and to seek, uh, you know, uh, seek that it get fixed through the legal courts. Uh, the ADA, ADA Education Reform and Notifications Act, what it basically does is, is sets up a series of roadblocks. It basically slams the brakes on any opportunity to try to, to, try to seek uh, things get fixed through the Americans with Disability Act. It requires things that the average person is, is not knowledgeable of unless they themselves have a lawyer, which is very costly. And people, I get calls all the time with people trying to figure out how to even find someone uh, who can help them in their community with real, genuine ADA issues, with folks being refused access, uh, all the way from, uh, you know, I was dealing with someone the other day that they refused to sell them a car because they said blind people cannot own a car. Um, and, and you know, the, the constant issues we face with, like, our service animals and and issues of denial and things like that uh, with the ADA. Even Union Station the other day, I was, I was battling to try to get Braille on the bathroom signs at Union Station. You'd think our nation's train station would be accessible, but it is not. So, to that end, the ADA Notifications Act. There is a change.org petition going around right now, and it's called Don't Tread On My ADA. So, what I ask is that everybody here, uh, if you're good with computers, go on and circulate, but go to change.org and search for Don't Tread On My ADA. And it's a petition right now. We've got, like, maybe 340 uh, folks that have signed up, hopefully there's more than that. That was like Thursday, so hopefully there's maybe upward. We want to get over a 1,000. Uh, Dara Baldwin from the National Disability Rights Network is an excellent disability rights advocate in Washington, D.C., and she's been leading the charge, trying to meet with congressional offices and get, get folks rallied together to meet with her with, with members of Congress staff because it is an issue that we're finding. Uh, you know, uh, many of these shopping centers that are, that are complaining about the ADA and these drive-by lawsuits uh, are, are in uh, often communities of color. They're the strip malls uh, that immigrants who are small business owners are coming here, and they're framing the message in a way that it's making uh, the ADA look bad even across partisan lines. So it's very important that we get in touch with all of our members of Congress. This is one of those issues that, that even if, if we feel that we are in a state that is very blue and thinks the way we think on certain issues, it is still very important to notify your member of Congress you can also give a call. The switchboard number, and I'll say this again, is 202-224-2131, 202-224-2131, and that's for the U.S. Congress switchboard. So hopefully folks can, can reach out with that. Um, so th- that's kind of one of the key issues we're focused on right now in Washington, D.C. Uh, we just got through, as I said, the health care d- conversation in terms of Medicaid, Medicaid. We are not out of the woods yet. We still have some battles to fight. The summer, the next plan on the president's agenda is major tax reform. We haven't had significant tax reform in this country since 1986, so the president has on his plate to to create another large tax package uh, that'll make significant changes in like corporate tax and things of that nature. Uh, it it is typically in Washington the way things done is that when you take money away from the government. You've got to find money from somewhere else in the government to help cover the cost. It's called a pay-for, and it's a very common process in government these days. In fact, they have to do it. If you want to pass something, you've got to get the money from somewhere else. So Paul's not going to write a check unless Peter finds a way to cover it. And with the concern that we're currently having under Speaker Ryan is that Medicaid will be that pay-for. So the idea of block granting Medicaid, which is a block grant, means right now States get Medicaid funding, and the government says, we will fund full for Medicaid, like services and things like that. Uh, Instead, they're going to cut you a check. And, you know, it's like mom and dad saying, okay, go off to college, here's your allowance for this month, use it as you were. Uh, And and we know how well we spent those checks in college. Uh, We wonder if states will be able to spend them as adequately in protecting those with disabilities rather than just going and buying lots of kegs of beer. So in that sense... Uh, the the Medicaid issue is not off our plate. So it's something that we need to let our members of Congress know, that we need to push back and make sure that Medicaid is not used as a bargaining chip in any kind of tax reform in this country. Because, again, there are 7 million Americans with disabilities. Uh, it's, there are those that are working that are able to not afford regular health insurance in the marketplace, but the Medicaid has been able to allow them. The Medicaid buy-ins in many states in the country has been an affordable way for people to get health insurance when their work hasn't been in doing it. So those are some of the two big hot issues that CNN reports on. One of the last issues I want to talk about, um, and then open up for any questions as well. How are we on time? What are we doing? 11 minutes ago. So this will take just a couple minutes, and then I want a few minutes for questions. Um, So I mentioned it earlier, and and it fits into the larger puzzle of what we're trying to do in Washington, D.C. right now, in, in working with other blindness groups and creating a coalition Uh, that focuses on our population and where we are headed and the reality that we are in a conundrum right now. Uh, When it comes to the services that the federal government provides, particularly for people who are newly blind or visually impaired, we're running into serious issues with supply and demand. Does everybody remember that from school? You know, how much lemonade do you have and, and how many people are waiting in line to get it on a hot summer day like today? So we have... This issue with supply and demand. As I said, with the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which was passed a couple of years ago, it did great things for Americans who are blind and young. For our kids who are in school right now, there's going to be a lot of wonderful opportunities for youth transition, what's called pre-employment transition services. I spoke to Minnesota a couple of weeks ago at their state convention. Was surprised to find out that, you know, before with what's called the pre-ets, they were spending 170000 dollars a year in pre-et services. There is a, a, a ceiling now that they have to spend up to. They have to spend up to 15% of their funds now, and now they're up to $1.5 million suddenly. They have to try to find out how to spend on youth. They have to spend at least 15% for all their youth. Or, I'm sorry, not a ceiling, a floor, yeah. Sorry, um, I'm upside down today. So, but yeah, floor, Frank, thank you. So the floor is at 15%. And with supported employment services, the money on for those that have maybe multiple disabilities and need additional help, 50% of the funds to help people get into jobs with supported employment uh, is, is going also to youth. So, again, this is wonderful news for our youth. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that Massachusetts, who has always been a leader in sort of pioneering innovative ways to engage youth, um, I don't know, you all might even be at 15%. I'm not sure how much it's going to impact you all like other states, but Uh, It it has created a lot of concerns in many states around the supply and demand issue because historically, as we know, very rarely are we ever able to get, because it's not covered under occupational therapy traditionally, blind services such as O&M, Braille instruction. In states where OTs do sort of help out with rehabilitation, oftentimes they have no, no knowledge at all of orientation mobility skills and the other skills necessary for independent living for people who are blind or visually impaired. So it's creating a major issue for the older population, which is where our population is, in trying to meet the needs. There was something called the homemaker outcome, which was a way in which uh, people who were going blind uh, maybe were not ready to go back to work. They weren't ready to go back to the job. It took me two years to learn Braille when I was 15, probably much harder when you're 40 with diabetes and you're having a hard time reading with your fingertips because your nerves are, are getting damaged. And so, you know, we're at a very unique situation with our population in that oftentimes, and too, we don't deal enough, as we all know, with the psychological ramifications and impact of losing our sight for people in this country. Uh, we just try to, you know, think, oh, here's a cane, and, and good luck. So, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of folks out there that do do great work with social work and, and, and more of a holistic approach. But overall, I think it's fair to say that there are areas where we need great improvement. Now... To that end, the homemaker outcome is gone. Now, RSA said it impacted unfairly. Only, it was only about 1%, they said, roughly, of people with disabilities, but it was 10% of the blind. But then we had research last year from Mississippi State that said in some states, even upward of 20% of closures were used for the homemaker. So what it's requiring folks to do is think very differently in the way that we try to get services to people um, you know, if someone comes into an office, uh, you know, we, folks say, you know, sort of jokingly, um, you're not ready to go to work? Okay, so what I hear is you're ready to go to work, you know, in that sense of, of trying to find ways. But, but we still, you know, it's, it's such a unique population in trying to get fully rehabilitated because by the time they get to RSA – uh, they haven't been going through physical and occupational therapy that their health insurance is busy covering, such as someone with maybe spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury or other areas of concern, or a stroke or something like that. So, we are currently, what we're doing now in Washington is, is advocating uh, and, and pushing in Congress to try to get greater clarification around this rule change. They also made some changes around the Ability One program that very much cut out a lot of what we felt like were really good opportunities for folks to get upward mobility jobs through national industries for the blind, um, based in part to the negative stigma that, that Ability One, which is the Javits Wagner Day Act, the, the sheltered work where 75% of people have to be, uh, you know, uh, people who are blind or have significant disabilities. So, But the homemaker issue is an area that we in AFB have really been working on and going up to the Hill to try to get... Congress to weigh in on the new Secretary DeVos to say, look, these are very serious opportunities in the sense that we need to try to figure out how to get rehabilitation to this population that isn't necessarily ready to go back to work, but we believe that there is great potential once they just learn to live in the skin of their new life as an American who's blind or visually impaired. So this is involving us on a much larger level of just trying to find creative ways to how do, can we still get rehabilitation to them. I think there's going to be some opportunities, and we'll have maybe some conversations this summer for those that can make it to the summer convention on ways that state affiliates can get involved through mentoring and through other ways, uh, particularly for youth. There's some, there's some money that is available for mentoring for youth as a result of this RSA. I think that's an area where state affiliates, if you aren't already doing it now, uh, you should maybe be working with the state um, to try to find ways that we can engage populations that are youth. But we cannot ignore the older populations in our country. So we are part of a coalition. Even NFB has come on board. This is one of these areas that we're working together on. Contrary to what people say, we're always fighting. Um, where they, they agreed as well that the homemaker is a, is a major concern that, that we're wrestling with. So we're working with the Vision Serve Alliance, NIB, National Associations for the Employment of People Who Are Blind, uh, AFB and others to really AER uh, to try to find a way to, to, to act on this so that the supply and demand, as it's going to get worse, will not leave us in in the side of the road for Americans who are blind or visually impaired. So those are some of the key areas, I guess, in what's going on in Washington, D.C. But as I always say, politics is local. Again, a call to action for you around the ADA, Education Reform and Notifications Act, please reach out to your members of Congress. The Disability Bar Association, I'm always talking about at the national conferences and the, the stuff about telling our story, how important it is to tell our story. Right, Because there's a lot of noise, and when we tell our story in a way that resonates in those that aren't even blind, when we find those common themes that really helps us. But to that end, um, the Disability Bar Association is looking for stories. So if you have an access issue where you've had issue getting access somewhere that you feel was covered under the ADA, if it's Uber, if it was a small store at a, at a mall, if it's walking in the ladies' room when you couldn't find Braille on the signs, like I did at Union one time almost, that was awkward. Um, then, you know, it, it, it's something that I think. I, if you can forward me those stories, and here's my email: A-Stevens, A for Anthony, Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, at acb.org. Again, A-Stevens at acb.org. We need your stories. If it's even on rehabilitation, I, I want to hear your stories. Advocate means to speak on behalf of people, and I am deeply humbled to be your advocate in Washington, D.C., but I don't go up there and I. Don't like to talk about myself. I need need the stories of what you all are facing on a day-to-day issue or what you faced in the past. We'll work to try to get those on the Disability Bar Association. We're also looking for transportation stories, uh, air carrier stories. We've been working a lot on service animals in the airlines. We're expecting maybe a proposed rule out this summer if if the administration will begin to move forward on regulations again, specifically on service animals and aircraft, which is an issue we're working on. Uh, We've had lots of great progress in the FCC. But we still need to start pushing for audio description that got shut down last November, uh, where we were going to expand from four to seven hours for each channel that covers audio description now each week around the CVAA, the Communications Video Accessibility Act. So uh, the, the greatest gift you can give right now from a sense of advocacy is free. It's your story. So please, A Stevens at ACB.org. Again, it is a great privilege and honor. I'm extremely humbled to. to be down in Washington, but as well to come up here and spend time with you all here in Massachusetts because the state does have a very uh, sweet spot in my heart. And so uh, I'm happy for, I think we've got a few more minutes for questions if anybody has any. Are we out of time? Uh, two questions. Yeah. Two questions.
2: Hi, this is Bob Hachet. Thanks for coming. Um, I've been at what I call the budget game for probably around 20 years. And one of the first things that I noticed is you mentioned glamorous items, and to me, the whole VR aspect seems to be way more glamorous than the SR, and yet the SR covers a much larger population. And, you know, so I guess, I mean, partially we've heard, part of what we need to do, it sounds like, is to get more stories out on the SR side of things because SR is almost like an orphan in terms of funding and the funding that it gets, or should I say the funding that it doesn't get. And, you know, and unfortunately, it's not easy to get the stories out because a lot of the folks who have recently lost their vision are, well, let's say they're not very proud about wanting to express their needs. And I'm wondering what the heck we might be able to do about that. And I know there's probably not a good answer for that one.
1: I think mentoring is a big part of that. Um, and, you know, the more that we can we can help them feel integrated in their new life uh, is key. And that's something that... that we as an organization can lead on, um, but you're right in the sense that that uh, that there there are a lot of things we need to focus on. It's not just about getting someone a, a job, but it's getting them to be able to not be afraid to step out of their room for the first time, right? So, but yeah, good good point, Bob. Yep. Thank you. One more. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh,
0: this is David Kingsbury. Hi, Tony. I met you last month in, mm-hmm. in Washington. Yeah. Um, about the ADA, the, you know, the access bill that's currently under consideration, mm-hmm. um, what do you say to the people who uh, – how do you respond to the people who say that, you know, those drive-by lawsuit shakedowns are a real problem? And, you know, I think we would all agree that they are despicable because they taint all the legitimate stuff that we do. Right. But, you know, how do you respond to that? And how would you respond also to the most prominent claim that people make that um, particularly making architectural changes could be prohibitively costly for small businesses?
1: There are certain things within the ADA that, that provide sort of a, a, a shelter for those where, you know, where it is, is if it is extremely costly. Um, but there are things that can be done. Um, and, and that are not significantly costly, such as just putting a ramp in front of a, a one-foot step for someone in a wheelchair, or uh, going on and buying a sign that has Braille on it, um, or in the case of, of the Target VNFB case, where brick-and-mortar stores are also covered on the Internet, and these are also important areas where we need to fight, where sometimes they just need to go in and flip a switch in the back end of their system to make it more accessible. You know? uh, we're not dealing with rocket science here. And so in that sense, uh, the costs, and we had the same issue a few years ago around swimming pools and, and accessibility in swimming pools, the costs, the benefits of, of our civil right far outweigh the cost. Um, what, the, what the bill does is it puts a significant burden on people that have limited resources and education themselves on what their laws are um, in order to drag out and drag out and drag out and never get done. It doesn't stop full force the opportunity to, to litigate around ADA or to eventually get to that point where you can agree, but it does that typical thing where it really drags it out in the courts. And so uh, I think one of the things that we can say to our members of Congress is, look, uh, A, this is the, these are a few bad apples. In a few states like California where there are certain state laws as well, that make it real lucrative for this kind of stuff to take place, like the, the money that lawyers can get for covering your case to get money back and things like that and what they can ask for in settlements and things. So it's not even an ADA issue. It's sometimes estate issues. Uh, the other thing is knowing, um, you know, just telling your story about what it feels like to be denied access, and then in our sphere, it is uh, some might have seen the press release that went out from A.C.B. on Itza, the restaurant of the future, and their inaccessible kiosks that are iPads behind a piece of plywood, that in theory should be completely accessible. There's no humans at all. You go and you order uh, your your quinoa and your your fancy bougie food that people like me enjoy in Washington, but it's completely inaccessible. But it can be, just someone didn't think about it. So. Uh, you know, and that's something that we just put a press release out on the other day, and I think that's a perfect example of what kind of stories we can say. where look, this is, this is not just, you know, someone in a strip mall out, out in Worcester somewhere that was built in the 60s that, you know, uh, they're upgrading it and they forgot to put a ramp in or something like that. It is a much more serious problem. And to take our voice away, to take our rights away, is going to have much more negative harm in our society that we as a country should not stand for at this point. So hopefully that answers your question. But for us, this is the technology realm. That's where our stories need to be told. All right. And again, thank you, everybody, for this opportunity to come here. I look forward to talking more with everyone today um, because I'm here for the rest of the day and into the evening. So thanks and keep doing the excellent advocacy you all do so well that Massachusetts is known for since 1776 for So thank you.
0: Now, a follow-up interview Rick Morin conducted with Tony Stevens on the same day at the Bay State Council of the Blind Convention.
3: Okay, hey, welcome to Affiliates in Action. We're here with Tony Stevens. Hi, Tony. Hi, Rick. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being at the Bay State Council Convention today. Uh, you're... Your talk was, uh, was as, as always very very uh, very, very good, very certainly very thorough and uh, uh, you just have such a great way of framing up um, you know, so much of, of what we need to be looking at from an av- advocacy standpoint. One thing though that you said, which really struck me today was inviting people to tell their stories. okay mm-hmm. Now, my experience is that a lot of people have trouble with that and i'm just wondering if you have any advice or pointers on what number one what types of stories are we talking about and number two how someone should should you know put the guilt aside i mean people have been conditioned to Mm
2: -hmm.
3: not complain and you know and all of that kind of stuff and um I mean, why, are tell- why, is t- why is telling the story important, number one, and number two, what's a good way to approach it if you've never really done that before?
1: Well, I think you raised a couple of good, a good points about why people have trouble telling stories. One, I think people tend to genuinely be shy sometimes, especially when they have to talk about themselves. There's always the fear of what others will think of you. You know, there's the psychological fear of sharing something that's as personal as your life. Especially if it's something tied to, you know, a disability or some particular part of your life that was transformative. Right. So there's the shyness that that oftentimes needs to be a hurdle that people need to overcome. Uh, The other thing, and this is one of the things you mentioned, in a sense, was, you know, people are, I think, sometimes they don't think they have a story to tell. You know, oh well, who wants to hear about my boring life? Or I'm insignificant. Right. I'm not. I'm not special in any way. I'm not an outlier. Uh, you know, the, and I think that. I think that is a big misrepresentation. Everybody has a story to tell, and I think in some ways we're th- f- led to think that we don't have a story to tell because we're sort of told our whole life to sort of either conform or be part of a larger social norm. That's right. So that we're not unique, we're not special. Our story is probably no different than others, some people might say. Right. But at the same time, you know, we are born screaming out. You know, I always say in in a lot of talks I give that we are a self-advocate from the moment we take our first breath after leaving the womb and we scream out. Right. And from that point forward, the world tells us, shh. You know, everyone tries to hush us. They try to quiet us. Right. They say, don't cry, uh, conform, be like everyone else. And I, and so I think, you know, it's one of the earliest responses we have is to try to scream out and say, hey, I, I need to tell you something. I'm starving here, or I'm scared, or I'm cold, or I don't know what's going on. And at the same time, we immediately, as, as a society, tell them, shh. Right. So there are some primal things in our heads that need to, you know... That, that some people overcome you know people go off to be journalists like I went off to journalism school and, and people go off to do all kinds of things sales and things like that where they tell their stories I think the best thing that, to do for anybody that's shy or thinks they don't have a story to tell is to, to and this is what they always tell good writers is to read or listen to other stories you know, the best way to be a good, effective storyteller is to enjoy hearing and reading stories. Right. So, you know, there aren't too many stories that have ever been written in all of human history. It's kind of the same narrative. And when we say narrative, you know, it has a start, a beginning. There's some sort of climax or there is a need that the protagonist needs. Uh, and, and there is something that transfers to the audience that isn't, you know, that is, that is universal but is not a direct part of that person. Not everybody here has probably hopped on a riverboat and headed down the Mississippi the same way that not everybody here has done, read an autobiography of someone they really admire and has done everything that person did. That was, that was heroic and admiring. Right. But somehow those stories still appeal to us. So what are those things in stories? And so I encourage people just to enjoy, enjoy the story. And in doing that, Think of the way that your life ties to a story that maybe you really like. If it's Star Wars or Marvel Comics, like my kids love, or <laughs> if it's hidden figures, uh, you know, uh, what, what are your stories and how does it relate to you? And then think of your life and try to find a, something that, that you think might relate to someone else. And it's even on the most broad position, like let's say transportation. Uh, how, how long has someone had to wait for a bus uh, out in the cold and just to get somewhere because they can't drive a car, uh, and get to work. You know, it takes two and a half hours maybe for someone to get to work because they have to deal with public transit from the suburbs. And and in that sense of what are what are the things in that story to unpack? Because you might be telling it to let's say a member of Congress that has a limousine that, that a, a personal driver, so they never right. have to ride the bus. Right. But what is it about? What is it about desire and want and wishing you could get somewhere faster, feeling like you're equal? What are the things in your story that you feel are, are emotional, that kind of choke you up, that are the values that anchor that story into, into some sort of narrative of who you are?
3: Yeah, I, I, keep, then, I yeah. keep coming back to things that challenge mm-hmm. my independence. Right. Um, you know, as, as part of the things that I want to focus on in, yeah. in any story that I tell, but...
1: Um. Well, and that's something that everybody has had some sort of challenge to their independence, even if they're trapped waiting in line at the DMV. Right. You know, you can't just be so independent that you just cut to the front of the line. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, not that we know what it's like to wait. In the, well, we got to get, you know, I go to the DMV to get my state ID every like eight, ten years or whatever. But, you know, what are things that, that you can extrapolate? That tie into someone else's experiences, right. and then and then find a way to make sure that those underlying themes really echo out in your story, so that you get their attention. You know, it, it's um, everyone loves Star Wars because it's ultimately Luke Skywalker is a kid in a small town that wants something bigger, something better, and it just so happens that all that is in the backdrop of this whole story of Darth Vader and Princess Leia and everything else. So, right. you know, at the core, there's still the story of the kid that wants to have a better shot at life, that feels like he's getting a raw deal and wants something better. And that's something that is universal. So what do we have in our own stories that kind of can be built out and expanded in the sense of just being able to touch the hearts of other people that are listening?
3: Now, this is a good opportunity for mentoring to happen mm-hmm. too, right?
1: Definitely. Mentoring, I think, is, is one of the things we need to do a better job at. AFB is a researcher with American Foundation for the Blind, uh, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, and she's one of their senior researchers, and we were in a long conversation one day that, that was fascinating to me about what they're doing in Africa where they have no money. I mean, we're concerned here about getting a 13% cut to Department of Education spending this year in the budget, right. but they have nothing in some parts and villages in Western Africa, let's say. So they're taking on an empowerment model where other people who are blind essentially are are leading the way, and they're mentoring. And in that mentorship, it's also action oriented. You know, uh, they're inspiring leaders that that are basically saying, "We're not going to forget about you because your story is a lot like my story, and it's that bridge." and And when we tell our stories, particularly to someone who's maybe at the first chapter. Of a similar story and they're just now entering into that book and they don't know how it's going to turn out yet it's it's great to know that there's someone that has already written that book and has gone through it. So mentoring, I can't emphasize enough the need for our community and this is one of the great things that ACB could could leverage and take advantage of is our, our ability because we're everywhere is our ability to reach out and to try to mentor if every member of ACB mentored you know it would be it would be an outstanding opportunity for tens of thousands of people in this country who, right. are, who are losing their sight today.
3: So define, what's your definition of mentoring?
1: I think mentoring, going back to storytelling, and one of the things I said about being a good storyteller is also to enjoy listening to stories. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great things about mentoring is not just standing in front of a person and talking to them as some wise wizard who says, this is how you will overcome your adversity and do as I say, never as I do. But listen, you know, find out where that person is and just be someone that can even just sit down like any relationship, anybody that's married, uh, you know, or has a a long lasting relationship, uh, you know, just listen to the other person. And I think that can go a long, long way. We need to do. I think we need to do more of that at listening. We think that mentoring is is always talking to the person. Yeah, the but it's co- just important to hear where that person is, and then to be able to reflect back on them your experiences if they if they crossed into that path, right? And then and then they can, in a sense, hear that mirroring coming back at them in that reflection and, and be able to bridge a relationship that way.
3: Is there anything else that that you know from from the standpoint of advice to affiliates or? Um, You know, how affiliates can better mobilize themselves? I mean, anything in general uh, that you might want to say above and beyond what you've already said today?
1: You know, I think often people think I'm not in the thick of it, so uh, there's not a lot I can do. You know, not everybody could get to a march in Washington or a demonstration in Washington, D.C., so therefore uh, they're sort of in the periphery. But that's that's not, not true at all. The people in the communities that have any story to tell just get out and tell it to anybody that'll listen right. it can be somebody with your school board it can be somebody that works for the state it can be a politician it can be a staffer it can be an intern for a member of congress uh, it can be somebody on the bus um, you know the more we tell our stories the better at storytelling we get right. and, and in doing that too we find we create relationships with people because they hear our stories and then they want to get to know us more
3: yeah, it, it's all about mobilizing. It's all about getting out there and being active. You know? Exactly. I, exactly. I, I mean, it's just in my family. I mean, I've seen my daughter become so vigilant to what's going on politically. Okay, she's she's a, a you know a 25 year old kid who's just been diagnosed with um, autism. Okay, mm-hmm. she's had a series of bad diagnoses, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, you know she's become just so. Uh, so she speaks for herself, and she 's out right. there telling her story yeah um, as a result of some of the things that have happened uh, you know which you uh, you know with the election you said it, it's it 's made some people um, more of an activist and I, I I mean I see that right in my backyard and and I think all that 's good you
1: know when people feel threatened, they want to seek out solidarity they want to find people who they know they can get through it together. Nobody wants to be alone during a tornado. Right. You wish you had someone to hold on to. Right. You know, in, in, in political climates, when they are threatening for whatever reasons to an individual, uh, we seek out others. And, and in our storytellings, we're able to find out where are those that we want to spend time with or where are those that we want to seek out the solidarity with. Right, um, You know, and I, th- I think there's a lot of that going on in the country right now, which is really exciting. There has been so much mobilization in Washington, D.C., but not just Washington, D.C., but when there was the Women's March on Washington, there were huge marches in Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. In, 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 in Nebraska, Boston, and in Omaha, and in Boston, Boston, but in rural no. parts of America. Oh, where, I know, I know. You know, they call I these know. flyover cities. So, you know, I think—and and that was just everybody out telling their story. You yeah. know, it was everybody. And so I think— when we get together as a group, there is something special about sort of that mass narrative being told, and uh, and that's a special feeling. So so getting involved in those kind of activities, lead them yourselves, get get people together for, let's say a, a, a your own town hall. You know, people always say, well, I, I, you know, if my member of Congress held more town halls, maybe I'd go to one. Hold your own. Right. There's no reason why an ACB affiliate cannot hold its own town hall. In every one of our states, every one of our affiliates, and then invite somebody to come there that, that you, who you feel is, a, is an important, influential person in your community. Right. So I would encourage, you know, like this August is a big August recess. We'll be probably going through some major tax reform and a bunch of stuff this summer. Uh, we even have a big recess in two weeks in April. Right. You know, affiliates that are maybe trying to think, what am I going to do in April? Uh, hold the town hall. Tell your stories. Get your members to tell your stories. So yep, I think that's yep, something yep. we can do easily.
3: I mean, one thing uh, that I've heard you talk about before, before, Tony, is some of your work with other disability groups. Mm-hmm. What 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 is your um, uh, your feeling and, and advice and in the importance of in in in
1: doing that? There is strength in numbers. Is probably the biggest thing, right? And there are similar issues. There are other folks with other disabilities that are having equally difficult times, let's say, getting a ride with rideshare Right. programs. Uh, there are other groups who are feeling that there's not enough money in a vocational rehabilitation system to serve their specific needs. There are other folks who are feeling discrimination. There are other folks who are feeling a lot of things we feel. So there are, there are solidarity connecting points outside of our own sphere. Right. And, you know, there's roughly... Four or five million Americans who are significantly visually impaired right. and, or blind, total blind. About 22 million Americans have, even with glasses, don't see good. Right. Uh, but there's 56 million Americans with disabilities. One out of every six people in our country has a disability. Right. Of some sort. That's a huge number. Right. That is, that is a number that if you were to put that number on the street in some sort of vocal form of telling its story— you would get the attention of everybody probably in the world. So the same way that the Women's March in Washington did. So, you know, we find strength in numbers. And, and we, as an organization that, uh, you know, has been around for what, A C B it's like, what, 60s, early 60s, so mm-hmm. 54, mm-hmm. 55 years now. We have done a great job within leading the way within the blindness community. I think, uh, you know, all people who are blind, because our programs and services were set up you a know, century or more for many of this stuff, we need to do a better job of embracing the, the sort of renaissance of disability rights and disability action here in our country, which has been primarily been leading the past five, ten years by the intellectual developmental disability community, the autistic community you were mentioning about earlier, right. has done an excellent job of really where we were in the 1920s with Helen Keller, in right. 19-teens and 1920s. So... <clears throat> There's a lot people can learn from our stories of 100 years ago, but there's the same way, too, that we can be re- re-energized in working with the new movements that are, that are striving to try to achieve stuff that we, we fought for a century ago. Yeah, so I encourage people to reach out to your local center for independent living, reach out to ADAPT or other groups that are focused on these cross-disability issues, and make sure your voice is part of that collectively voice. I go to a lot of meetings where I'm the only blind person in a room across the disability right. groups, and it's a little disappointing because there's a lot of us out there. Yeah, well, so I shouldn't be the only one.
3: Yeah, you've heard me talk about today the uh, MBTA stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're in, in the room when we were talking was, about yeah. that, but this task force they were on um, independent living is is on there. We also, mm-hmm. you know, there's a senior action group that, that that's in there, and there's so much synergies between the types of issues that they're facing with and, and and issues that we're dealing with. In fact, many many seniors are visually impaired, but but not always acknowledging the fact that they are and uh you know they're, they're, i mean the more we work together the more we tell you know listen listen to their story and they listen to ours yeah you know the the more we we you know bind ourselves to each other and no, and it's and, and it's absolutely incredible it, you know the power of that i mean the um, you know the fact that um, the governor is taking notice i mean it's um, you know it, it it it's any single voice out there is not as powerful as 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 the collective and for us to to work, you know, uh, you know, across the aisle, if you will, uh, is good, and I'm very happy to see you know us working with NFB on things too. I yeah,
1: mean, no, we're 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 excited about the opportunities we have to work with them, and and going back to your issue of, I think people that don't click, even though they are visually impaired, right? I mean, blindness is a unique sensory impairment in that any person can quote fake it when they close their eyes, even though I know we always hear that you know, oh, I I did a sleep shades test for two days, and I know what it's like to be blind, and we'll say, well, not necessarily. Right. You know, but but for people who are going blind, I think they try to ignore it sometimes for people that are experiencing vision loss as it's happening. Too often, you know, there's this idea of, uh, well, it's... You know, I I can I can see, you know, that denial issue. Right. Uh, I think we need to do a better job of that and making people not be afraid of saying that I'm blind because, you know, if you bump into something, oh, I just wasn't looking, you know, and anybody, anybody who can see perfect does that.
3: Yeah, it's the old trauma, though, of giving up those car keys.
1: Oh, that that is big. Yeah. And it is, you know, and having to ask for help that's a hard thing for a lot of people yeah yeah
3: well and and many of these people feel isolated you know they, they mm-hmm. feel like it, it's the only they're the only people that this has ever happened to and, yeah and, uh, and and again um, you know listening to what they're saying and us telling our stories uh, you know as a way to uh, intimate to them that that you know that there's things that we can help each other with. Um, I, I think
1: is, uh,
3: it only helps everybody.
1: Definitely. Preach it. Preach it. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> hey, Tony, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Um, thanks for coming to Boston. Um, I know you've got a lot of ties here with your wife and everything, and uh, we, we've just been thrilled to have you.
1: Well, I, I was, it was my pleasure. It's, it's great to get up to this part of the country. I love coming to the Northeast. So, so thanks for the invitation and, and the opportunity to chat this afternoon. If it,
3: was, if it was the baseball season, I'd be taking you to a Red Sox game.
1: Next time. Next time. (laughs)
3: Okay, Tony, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Rick. You have been listening to Affiliates in Action, a monthly
0: program heard Tuesdays on ACB Radio Mainstream designed to inform you of developments in the affiliates of the American Council of the Blind. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Rick Warren, I'm Rick Lewis.